five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the top of the My guest today is Aram Kirkonian, a lawyer from Ontario who's studying his master's in law and a research assistant at the Institute of Air and Space Law at McGill University. He's also the co-author of the recently completed independent review of the Remote Sensing Space Systems Act. Global Affairs Canada tasked the Institute of Air and Space Law to complete the independent review, the second by the Institute, the first having been completed in 2012. Welcome, Aram, to the Space Q podcast. Thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate being on here. Today, we're going to try and shed some light on the Remote Sensing Space System Act uh, and the recently completed independent review so our audience can better understand why this act is so important to this community, space community, and Canadians. So my first question is, um, how about we start with a quick introduction to the Remote Sensing Space System Act, which... Going forward, I'm either going to call it just the Act or the RSSSA uh, during our conversation. So, and also, can you give us an example of uh, how the Act is actually used? Perfect, absolutely, Mark. So, um, a, a little bit of history might be a little bit uh, might be useful in this sense. So, we have to go back to about the 2000, um, and that was when the U.S. and Canada started. Uh, they entered into discussions, and they ultimately entered into an agreement that dealt with the commercialization of remote sensing. And so at that time in particular, RadarSat 2 was about to, was in the early stages of development and it was going to come online and it had intentions of coming online. And the Canadian government and the U.S. government agreed that once this commercialization of remote sensing uh, took place, it would make sense to have a unified uh, regulatory and, and control uh, processes in place. So... The, the, following this agreement between the U.S. and Canadian governments, um, Canada undertook the drafting of a bill. Um, it was promoted by what was then the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, uh, which is now Global Affairs Canada. And that bill really was the, ended up being the Remote Sensing Space Systems Act, which became law in 2005 and which had a coming into force date of 2007. So uh, for the past Ten years or so, therefore, there's been uh, the law on remote sensing in Canada has been governed by this act, the RSSSA, as well as its associated regulations. So, in a sense, uh, the way I like to explain remote sensing, and I think a perfect example or, or the most useful example, is something equivalent to, to Google Earth. You have a satellite that's in space that ends up taking pictures um, of, of, of Earth. Um, and, you know, those pictures are then used and the raw data from the satellites is converted into different kinds of pictures and different uses and applications. Um, in that sense, uh, really, uh, the, the law on remote sensing, because it was adapted in, 2000, or in uh, 2005, and because the technology had room to grow, and that was, that was obvious, and as well because the RadarSat-2 was a new system. It was going to be using new technology, uh, something we call SAR, which is Synthetic Aperture Radar, uh, which is a different kind of imaging system than had been used in the past. The, the Act decided to make sure that its purview was broad enough to encompass potential future applications. So anything, and this is important here in terms of the language used in the Act, anything that has the capability to sense the Earth falls within the purview of the Remote Sensing Act. So that's a, a pretty broad spectrum of potential sensors, uh, especially today in the era of small satellites. Um, 
And also, if, if I understand correctly, the act was very strong on the security side of things. So, I mean, it's been used substantially uh, to, um, I would say, uh, based on my understanding, um, to put security ahead of technology or commercial interests. Um, I think that was one of the findings that was in the in the review. So, um, is it leaning too heavily on the security side, which is uh, hampering what's being done uh, or trying to be done by the commercial entities in Canada and Canadian and other country, uh, companies wanting to work in Canada? So I think that's a, it's a really good question, and I think it's an important one as well, primarily because, you know, as you mentioned, um, security uh, regarding remote sensing and, and those kinds of activities is really highlighted in the Act. And, and when you read the Act on its face, and even if you look into it a little bit more deeply, uh, security is kind of what jumps out at you. And so it's understandable because especially at the time, um, the, based on, again, the U.S. and Canada's interest in regulating remote sensing, to ensure that the activities wouldn't jeopardize uh, national security, uh, foreign policy interests, all those kinds of things, security was definitely highlighted. At the same time, because the act was instituted because there was going to be a commercialization of remote sensing, there was some discussion, there is some mention, some uh, um, under undercurrent, so to speak, of the importance of, of commercialization and the importance of incentivizing commercialization. Now, on my opinion, in my opinion, I should say the the security aspect definitely seems to be more uh, pressing or more more prevalent, I should say, in the act itself, um, as opposed to the commercialization aspect of it. But what we found, and maybe it'll help you to give a little bit of a background as to how we undertook the study, um, what we found was that the commercial interests aren't necessarily hampered by the act. I wouldn't say the act incentivizes uh, commercial interests, but I also don't think it's, it's fair to say that it's uh, uh, outright hampering the, the commercialization. Now, if I can just go back and, and talk a little bit about um, how we undertook the study itself. Um, this was a, the second study, as you mentioned, um, to, uh, to look into and to conduct an independent review of the Remote Sensing Act. And so Section 45.1 of the Act says that every five years, an independent review must take place to make sure that the objectives of the Act are being met by the language of the Act and its implementation, and that Canada's international obligations as it relates to remote sensing are upheld. Now, in undertaking this study, uh, Professor Ram Jacku, who's the director of the Institute of Air and Space Law, where I'm studying now, um, and I, we, we decided that we would conduct a face, uh, a kind of like a, a review on its face of the act in terms of the language and the implementation and contrast that with uh, the techno technological developments, the commercial developments, the new applications, all that sort of thing. Um, and at the same time, uh, after we did that, we went into discussions and we created a questionnaire that we circulated amongst industry representatives and some government officials that operate within the, the Remote Sensing Act. And based on that information, we were able to conduct follow-up interviews and draft that report um, based on those findings. So, um, so this second review seemed to be a little bit, or not a little bit, but uh, more encompassing than the first review. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Uh, when we when we were tasked with doing this, the 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 guidelines or the parameters, I should say, were very similar to the first. And as as you know, reading the review, you'll see in some of the introductory paragraphs, um, many of the findings that were stated in the first uh, uh, in the first review still are relevant today. And part of that is because nothing really came out of the second, or nothing public, I should say, came about from the first review. 
Um, there were no uh, independent, con- or there were no consultations, there were no announcements, there were no conferences, uh, there were no amendments. I think importantly, there were no amendments or changes to the act or the regulations. Um, so following that, or as a result of that, I should say, when, when we undertook the this, this second study, um, Professor Jack, who was a part of both the first and the second, but I was the other author, the co-author of the second one, we decided we would kind of take a look and see if we could focus more on what has developed in the last five years since that first study. And what we found is that some of the same issues um, are, again, uh, relevant, but maybe a little bit more pressing given the advances in, in what has happened in the space community over the past five years. So I think, uh, in a way, it's a little bit more detailed. There's a little bit more information in there. There are more uh, clear recommendations this time around. Um, again, it's, it's unclear you know, what will happen from, from our perspective on that, but I think the, the, the intention was to, uh, to, to get a little more deep to investigate a little more deeply the issues around what were highlighted in the first report and to either reiterate them or expand on them in the second. So let's talk a little bit about those findings uh, and some of the recommendations. Um, Now, one thing that struck me um, and which I wrote about uh, when I first heard of the report uh, on our website, SpaceQ, is that um, uh, you say that the law, the remote sensing law, is actually being used as a general space law. So um, how is the act being used as a general space law? And to follow up on that, you say that there is a need for a general outer space act. What would that encompass? And, um, and how do you see it, if it was to go ahead, being uh, implemented? And it would be something that the government as a whole, or would it be global affairs that would be uh, tasked to do this? Absolutely, Mark. So uh, one of the one of our findings was that the Remote Sensing Act, as its name would suggest, is was intended to govern remote sensing or to regulate remote sensing activities. Now, in Canada, the number of different kinds of space activities that are currently uh, uh, licensed or regulated in any uh, discernible fashion are essentially anything that has to deal with radio communications, which has got the Radio Communication Act anything with telecommunications, with broadcasting, and with remote sensing. So uh, for quite a few of Canada's activities that fall within remote sensing, that's all in well. But I think what we're starting to, to, to discover or, or what has uh, started to kind of percolate under the surface of the act is that it's acting in such a way or it's regulated activities that wouldn't necessarily fall under remote sensing per se if there was another act that could uh, that would be able to regulate this activity, and so that's a little bit abstract. So I'm going to try and concretize it by saying, if you were to take something like SAIS, so Satellite uh, Automatic Information, Artificial Information Systems. So if you were to take something like SAIS, um, the the current regulation of that falls under the Remote Sensing and Space Systems Act because it is being considered an activity that is capable of sensing the Earth. So the way SAS works is that you have uh, boats, usually maritime vessels, that have got a number of different transponders on them that send out signals to each other uh, consistently to help them map their location, identify other ships nearby, and communicate with uh, stations on shore. Now, one of those signals, and many of those signals are mandated by the International uh, Maritime Organization that requires vessels over a certain size and weight to have certain transponders on them. Now, that's usually the AIS system. The SAIS system, which is a satellite component, is, is, 
incorporates transponders in space and receivers in space that can pick up these signals. Now, these signals, it's important to note, aren't necessarily transmitted to space, but they can also be picked up from space. And that's somewhat of a... Of a, 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 a that's somewhat of a distinction that goes a long way when you start discussing whether or not SAIS is, should be falling under the purview of the Remote Sensing Act or if it should be regulated under some other act. And so you have these satellites that are picking up these signals and then they're using that information to either provide real-time or to provide location analysis and all these kinds of, uh, of different activities. Now, I, I must admit here, I'm not a, a technician at all. I'm not, you know, an engineer by trade. Um, so a lot of this information, I've, you know, I've learned by speaking to some of the technical experts as well as industry representatives, and I might be, you know, distorting some of the, the, the absolute truths of, of, of the way these systems work. But in essence, unlike most traditional remote sensing satellites, these SAIS systems are not taking pictures of the Earth. They're not taking radar scans of the Earth. All they're doing is picking up signals that are emitted from the Earth. Uh, via, you know, radio communications in different ways and that sort of thing. And they're making analyses or, or, or coming up with conclusions and, and they have applications based on that. So some would argue, and, and I think I'd probably fall into this camp, but again, you know, it really de it depends on how uh, the technology and the, and the engineering behind it are all working. But some would argue that the idea of having the Remote Sensing Act regulate this activity is only because there is no other act. So let's say this, we, considered, we did not consider this remote sensing. Under what legislation would this activity be regulated? Now, because Canada as a state has international obligations and specifically related to regulating activities that take place in outer space, they have to authorize activities and then they have to supervise activities that occur in outer space. Because that's the case, Canada must be supervising and regulating activities like SAIS. But because there's no other legislation for it, it's my opinion in this case that the activity itself of SAIS ends up being regulated under the Remote Sensing Act simply because there's nowhere else for it to go. Now, you can, to a certain degree, regulate it um, under the Radio Communications Act because any satellite, um, barring ones that we can communicate using lasers, which I think is still a little bit into the future, um, any activity in space needs some sort of uh, radio communication. Now, you can dictate what gets governed by uh, uh, what kinds of activities can take place and what you can do in space based on the license that you grant for the radio communication, so for the spectrum that you're allotting to this activity. But again, that a little, that kind of, uh, it takes outside, it, it takes the objective and the scope of the Radio Communication Act, which is to grant uh, radio frequency licenses and uses it to fulfill a different function. And so this kind of gets to the second part of the question, which is what would a general outer space act be? And so that's, that's very much up in the air. And, and to a limited extent, I can say that um, Professor Jackman and I also wrote a, a, a separate report for, the, for Global Affairs Canada last year, late last year. And that was looking more at Canada's international uh, obligations, uh, Canada's current space laws, um, whether there was a need for an Outer Space Act. Now, that report um, ended up staying within the, uh, the Global Affairs uh, Canada, within the government, so it hasn't been made public, so I can't speak about it too much. But all that is to say is that there is an idea or there is a, a, a notion floating out there that as Canada progresses in space activities and in conducting space activities, there's going to be a need to regulate these activities. Now, 
if you take something like on-orbit servicing, where you have a satellite that's been operating for 10, 15 years, it's still operating fine, except it's running out of fuel. Or let's say one component breaks down. You could have another satellite, theoretically at least, go up there and either refuel that satellite or fix the component that's malfunctioning. Now, to do that, you would need a certain sort of license to conduct what we're going to call on-orbit servicing. And currently, there is no legislation under which to do that. Now, the same could be said for active debris removal. So if a satellite breaks down and it's orbiting the Earth, ideally, you would want to remove that, A, for the outer space environment to reduce the clutter that's up there, and B, because it's a potential liability if, it, if there's any uh, damage that occurs as a result of that. The same thing is going to be happening for, uh, for, for mining, the space mining, the, the mining of outer space resources. Um, all these different kinds of new uh, technologies and new activities that come into play are going to need some sort of legislative regulation. And currently, the only aspect or the only uh, regulatory framework that we have, like I mentioned before, is either the Broadcasting Act, the Telecommunication Act, the Radio Communication Act, or the Remote Sensing Act. And really, without a general outer space act, your options are to either regulate everything or try and regulate everything under the existing legislation, which, again, in a way kind of bastardizes their uh, original uh, intentions and their scopes, or you create new legislation for each activity. Now, I think that's one way of doing it, but I almost think that that might be a cumbersome way of doing it, and, and it might end up, uh, it, and I think, to be honest, that that's more of a reactionary, more than a proactive approach, where, okay, the Canadian government realizes that mining in outer space is becoming a reality, the Institute of Law. They realize that on-orbit servicing is becoming a reality, so they institute a law. Otherwise, what you can do is create a general outer space act, uh, implement it, and then as these new technologies and applications develop, you find ways to regulate them within this one general overarching act. Now, I know that was a relatively long answer, and hopefully you have quite a few questions that you know came out of that that we can uh, discuss a little bit more. So, yeah, uh, here's the first thing that, that comes to my mind. So, obviously, since the last time um, the review was conducted, a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. And we do know that, uh, in fact, um, space... Uh, as a commercial enterprise uh, is some is an area that's in seeing some tremendous growth right now uh, and in fact one of the things that's happened in the last five years which I don't think anybody uh, from the government perspective was uh, really anticipating was these mega constellations um, so in essence we now have this remote sensing sensing systems act Mm -hmm. um, which governs everything, but truly is not meeting or living up to or adapting, I should say, to um, what's currently uh, ongoing. So we now have uh, SpaceX, um, um, OneWeb, mm -hmm. uh, who are looking at putting up these uh, mega constellations. We're not talking you know, 10, 20 satellites. We've already got that with Planet Labs, which has already put up over 100 uh, small satellites. Um, we're talking about uh, putting up uh, thousands of satellites. Is, you know, is the government prepared to deal with the regulatory um, issues that come along with that? And I also know for, uh, you know, as a, an example, that Planet Labs, in terms of ground stations, and um, KSAT, uh, which built a private ground station facility in Inuvut, uh, Inuvik, I should say, that um, 
the uh, you know they've been waiting for a year just to get approval to turn on their dishes. Everything sitting there waiting to be used. So we're fine. We're seeing that the government just doesn't seem to be capable of keeping up with it at this stage. What's it going to be like two, three years down the road? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's. A- uh, once again, that's a, you know, it's a great question. I think it really gets to the heart of what's developed in the last five, ten years. And re- I want to say realistically what we can expect, but really I don't know if we can expect what's going to happen. I have a feeling, uh, you know, space ap- applications and activities are going to transform in you know ways we can't even anticipate right now. But to get to the question of small satellites, which is obviously a burning topic and and a very important one, especially with these uh, with these large constellations realistically the regulatory framework doesn't change that much depending on whether or not you have one ten hundred or a thousand satellites now what that what that means to say there are of course some nuances that come with having a thousand satellites versus one and and one of those is is mostly about how do you deal with satellites that reach the end of their lives which will happen within three years as opposed to ten years or um, if you have a fail rate of you know five percent and you have a thousand satellites, well, that's you know uh, that's that's about fifty satellites as opposed to if you have a, just a single satellite system or a ten satellite constellation, and you know it becomes the numbers increase, so to speak. So those are things to, to to really keep in mind. But in terms of the regulatory perspective, if what you're regulating is the activity, then the activity of remote sensing, whether it's done by one satellite, 10, or 1,000, doesn't really change that much. Um, in that sense, uh, so I, I think in that sense, what it really becomes is less of a theoretical limitation to the regulatory framework, if we're looking at, say, remote sensing, for example, and more of a resource limitation. So, of course, when you're trying to license one satellite versus 1,000, and even if those 1,000 have a blanket license where you know, you, you, you essentially uh, go through the specifications and all those kind of things for one satellite and then, you know, uh, just print the same form a thousand times, essentially. Um, those have got some sort of uh, uh, resource-intensive processes. Um, but realistically, it's just it's going to be the number of the different applications, the number of the licenses, the number of the applications that are going to be more of a, uh, of, a, uh, of a constraint, I think, or more of a limitation on what the regulator is going to be able to achieve than say the fact that one particular system will have a thousand constellations. So I think what's really important uh, if we look with Planet Labs and actually makes it a great example for this, notwithstanding the the ground station issue, which we can get to in a second, um, they've been demonstrating that not only can they launch 100 satellites at a time or not only can they have an operation 200 satellites at a time, they have different iterations of satellites. So you had their original ones, which they launched, and they make slight improvements, and they launch a second batch. Then they make even more improvements and will launch a test group. And so while this is great, and this really looks like the Silicon Valley startup in terms of apps that you use on your phone with, you know, every month there's a new update that brings new features, when it comes to remote sensing within the regulatory framework, you end up having an issue where Every time there's a new function or a new sensor or a new uh, uh, um, you know, uh, way of, of conducting the operations, the regulators, because of national security and, and foreign policy interests, they want to know what these kinds of things are. And, of course, as you know, we've understood and, 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 and discussed or, or alluded to, uh, these things take time, especially within the government. So what you end up having is somebody like Planet Labs who really wants to develop and, and introduce new technologies and transform the way they're doing their own activities, and a government, that, a, a government regulator that probably isn't up to task in terms of speed. 
So uh, I suppose this goes to uh, an issue which you sort of uh, highlighted, which is resources, and which was another finding in the report, which is that Global Affairs Canada is uh, understaffed and uh, underfunded. And in particular, um, in the review, it says that although uh, Global Affairs Canada has done a commendable job administering the RSSA over the past decade, given that the international focus is now on par with its other responsibilities, it is worth considering whether a new office with particular expertise in remote sensing operations rather than diplomacy would be more suitable. And the recommendation that goes with that is to uh, create uh, an independent regular body that would be tasked with overseeing the RSSA uh, from the perspective of reviewing applications, granting licenses, and so forth. So can, can you elaborate a little bit on that? And, and, and as an independent uh, regulatory body, how would it be positioned in government? And, and then I have another question following that that relates to, well, how would that go with the general space uh, law? Or sorry, the, uh, a new general outer space act. Would that regulatory body also do that or is that a separate thing? So uh, I think, you know, again, this is probably one of the important um, recommendations or conclusions. The, the funding aspect and the resources and the technical expertise, I think, is, again, really important. But going to the point of whether or not GAC's utility in regulating uh, remote sensing has run its course, I think we need to go back again to that little historical introduction, which was when remote sensing, when the remote sensing law first came into play, it was a result of a foreign policy cooperation. And so the Canada and the United States wanted to be on the same page with how they're going to be regulating commercial remote sensing activities. As a result of that, uh, you had GAC, which was the Department of Foreign Affairs, which is tasked with these foreign relationship uh, um, and essentially, you know, the generation of relationships across across borders was tasked with undertaking to not only bring forward the law as they were the ones that had drafted that original agreement in 2000, um, but also being the regulators at play. And part of the regular part of the role of the regulator in GAC was that. There needed to be some international harmonization um, in terms of what was going on across the board, uh, across the world, I should say, and especially with Canada's allies, so as not to disadvantage Canadian commercial entities that were undertaking remote sensing. So part of the responsibilities of the GAC regulators are to go out and to discuss with their foreign counterparts what kinds of regulations are going to be in place. Now, that said, that has run its course largely. Um, and unless there are going to be any, you know, great shift in terms of policy and like what's regulated and what's not regulated or how it's regulated, I think GAC has done a pretty commendable job in getting Canada on board with, you know, most other countries, at least at the, the general level. Now, that said, if GAC's specialty is to uh, undertake these kinds of foreign consultations and negotiations and getting everybody on the same page, what they lack there is really this technical expertise in, in remote sensing systems. Now, the current regulators at GAC who are doing this do have some sort of expertise, but because of funding cutbacks and realistically a lack of maintaining funding uh, that's really commensurate to the growth of this industry, you have a, a staffing body that's understaffed and under-resourced and all that kind of thing. And at the same time, you lose the technical expertise um, that is necessary, especially nowadays with, the, with the, the, the quick growth and the technological advancement. So having an independent regulatory body would really give it this ability to 
uh, to, to essentially cultivate a community of technical experts that have the opportunity and the funding to undertake consultations with other government agencies, but also this you know, collective uh, expertise that really helps them address the issues that are happening um, and that the commercial industries are putting forward regarding their own space systems, and it gives them the, the, the opportunity to respond timely or in a timely fashion to, to really what's changing, the changing landscape, so to speak. Is there an example of a regulatory body for another uh, area that you might say would be comparable in terms of uh, something being created, like, uh, you know, the CRTC, uh, perhaps? The CRTC is one example, and then there's also the, the Canadian Nuclear uh, Regulatory Board, I believe is what it's called. Um, they are also uh, another example where they're at arm's length in the government, and you have to remember that there are government remote sensing operations, or there could be new ones in the future, um, that would also fall within the purview of the RSSA. And it might make sense to have uh, essentially an independent arm's length body look at those as well. Um, so, yeah, the CRTC would be one example. Um, again, the I think it was the Canadian National Regulatory Board would be another example. So here's the thing. With um, uh, the government's push for innovation, um, it seems to me that, that on the one hand, we're getting an effort to innovate, to push for new technologies, new ways of doing things, and it doesn't have to be space, it's all sorts of different industries, um, and we're getting some funding to push in those areas. We still have this issue on the other end of regulations and compliance and bureaucracy, which is still actually being underfunded. And so you may push in one side, but if you're not keeping up on the other end, then how do things go forward? So, uh, you know, as much as we uh, want to see innovation move forward, how is the government expecting things or to move forward? If at the same time, you know, it takes a year, two years just to get, uh, you know, the paperwork pushed. And that's a, that's a very good question. And I think it gets to the heart of the issue in terms of, and this is kind of what the commercial industry was, was, was arguing for when we were discussing with them. <clears throat> they have all these incentives, or they have these uh, desires to, to revolutionize and to adapt and to create great you know, applications, but there's really this kind of pushback from the legislation just in terms of the inefficiency of the, uh, the regulatory framework. Now, again, that's mostly, a, 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 that's mostly a funding issue, I think, and something that can probably be solved with more manpower. <clears throat> but one of the other things that the industry was really uh, uh, insistent on more than anything was essentially for certainty in the law. So it's not so much, and this is, you know, often a criticism or something that people um, say that industry demands, which is, you know, less regulations, fewer regulations, more opportunities for people to, uh, for industry to innovate. But really what they're seeking is more a level playing field across the board and one that affords some sort of certainty to what kinds of activities are going to be regulated, to how they're going to be regulated, to ensuring that the rules don't change halfway through a process. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, even more important for industry than it is for uh, um, 
well, no, I shouldn't say it's more important. I think it's equally important for industry to have this this legislative and regulatory certainty as it is to ensure that when they do file an application or they do file a license, it doesn't take years to uh, to process. I mean, it's a matter of months, and this goes to uh, this goes in line well with small stats, where it takes months to you know develop conceptualize or conceptualize, develop, and then launch a satellite system. Yeah. So it, everything being equal um, for you know everybody, um, everything needs to be done in a timely fashion, and that's not actually happening right now. So. I suppose my last question on this is, um, you know, you've done, or McGill has now done two of these reviews. The review was submitted. Um, it was published on the uh, Government of Canada website, uh, albeit on a page buried deep in, in the government website. So it's not, it's not something that they were promoting, that this review had been completed. They haven't discussed the uh, findings or the recommendations or commented on the recommendations. To me, this seems like, um, and of course, they are extremely uh, busy. um, And as the report says, in terms of at least uh, managing uh, this part of uh, uh, the program, uh, you know, understaffed, can we expect uh, Govern or Global Affairs Canada to comment on this? Uh, and if not comment on it, what's your sense on them and actually moving forward on your findings and implementing some of your recommendations? So I, I, think, you're, I, I think you're completely right. Um, Global Affairs hasn't necessarily uh, made a pronouncement of the fact that this review was, was uh, taking place or that it's been completed. To the best of my knowledge, Internally, at least, Global Affairs is considering the report. They are considering the findings and the recommendations. What they decide to do with that is anybody's guess. Um, hopefully, you know, of course, from my perspective, they take the issues we've raised seriously and they, they look towards implementing some of the recommendations. But at this point, it's been you know, about two or three months now since uh, it was submitted. Of course, you know, government moves like government uh, at, at its own pace. Um, so whether or not that's been a long time or a short time, I think it's safe to say that they are considering uh, the report itself as well as the remote sensing regulatory framework, but it's unclear what they're going to do with it at this point. Okay, I'd like to thank you for being a guest on my show today. And uh, when there are new developments, uh, I hope that you'll come back and uh, we can discuss this issue again. No, thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's a wrap on the second episode of the Space Q podcast. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. <laughs>